If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to the book of Job. You'll find that right before the Psalms. And we are continuing on this evening in our series on glimpsing the sun from the shadows. Um, we have looked at uh, various passages out of the wisdom literature in this series. We've looked at one or two Psalms. So far, we have considered a passage out of the Proverbs, out of Ecclesiastes, out of Song of Solomon. And so to round it off, we are going to look at a passage out of the book of Job. Um, Job chapter 1, and I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter, and then uh, let's turn over to the, the last chapter, and we'll pick up and read the final verses in chapter 42, verses 10 through 17. Um, here, in this most antiquated book, Job is uh, probably the earliest written revelation of God, predating um, Moses' writings, the book of Genesis through Deuteronomy, and um, he probably lived sometime not long after Esau. Um, We'll talk about that. He lived during that patriarchal era, and um, we're introduced to him without a whole lot of background here. In chapter 1, verse 1, we read, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, on his birthday, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came in among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job, saying the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, uh, down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said the Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine 
in their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And then if you would turn over to chapter 42, after a long saga, a period of conflict and testing and complaint, and then a great revelation of the Lord, of himself and his power and his majesty and his mystery, uh, his incomprehensibility, um, he now turns to rebuke Job's three worthless friends. And uh, picking up in verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. And I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house, and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camel, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters, and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Kezia, and the name of the third Curran Hopic. And in, the, in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons four generations And Job died an old man and full of days. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, it is not a commonly preached through book that we're looking at this evening. I've actually never had the privilege of preaching a single sermon on the book of Job. By way of contrast, Joseph Carroll, one of the Puritans, he was one of the members of the Westminster Assembly. He was uh, John Owen's predecessor in the independent Reformed Church that he pastored in London after the great ejection, and um, he was a man greatly revered. He took it upon himself in 1642 to begin uh, a sermon series on the book of Job. I'm not sure if he planned out the 24 years he would preach through it to 1666. Not a great idea, by the way. Um, It's been said that... um, his, his congregation dwindled significantly over those years. It's also been said, and, and one of his contemporaries, Edmund Calamy, stated that his church so much increased at the end of his time there in that, that sermon series that at his death he left 136. Now, you may think that's a snarky comment, but under severe persecution, 136 people coming to an independent Reformed church was actually quite substantial. 
Um, but what we, we can say about Carroll's preaching on this book is what Spurgeon famously said in commenting in commentaries. He said, Carroll must have inherited the patience of Job to have completed this stupendous task. 400 and um, 24 sermons still print in print today in 12 volumes. Um, never been abridged. Spurgeon actually said to abridge it would be like taking a, a massive amount of oxen and trying to put it into a little container. Um, and, and yet, this is a difficult book. Um, this book teaches some of the most wonderful truths in Scripture. Um, we learn about God's sovereignty over all things out of the book of Job more than almost any other book, maybe than Isaiah or Romans. Um, we learn about the suffering of the godly, the mysterious wisdom of God in creation and providence. We learn about Satan's role as the agent of evil and temptation. We learn about Satan's tactics in tempting believers um, we learn about the need we have to be careful in receiving counsel from friends. We learn, um, we learn about prayer and worship in the life of a believer who is suffering. And we learn how to parent our children from Job. We also learn how to patiently persevere in the midst of suffering. Loads of lessons in this book. Um, one old theologian actually observed that for such an early work of God's special revelation, the book of Job gives us some incredibly developed doctrines. The doctrine of God is large throughout this book. Um, and this book tells us that God is a spirit, that he's the only true God, that he's omniscient and omnipresent, that he's the almighty. That's one of the most famous names that Job uses, the almighty, that he is the almighty God, that he is the ruler and governor of the universe, that he is just, rendering to each man according to his works, that he is independent and free and self-existing, that he is immense and unsearchable, self-existent, most holy, and that he is a prayer-hearing and sin-forgiving God. That's pretty amazing. Job didn't have the Pentateuch. He didn't have the Bible. Um, he had oral revelation. He was most likely a descendant of Abraham through Esau. Esau has a son named Uz. Job lives in the land of Uz. Book of Lamentation talks about Esau's descendants, the Edomites living in Uz. It's likely that he was a descendant of Esau and that one of uh, Esau's offspring had carried the revelation God had given Abraham. Think about that. He's outside the covenant people. This is miraculous what this book teaches. He's outside the covenant people. He doesn't have all the privilege we have. He doesn't know about the Exodus. He doesn't mention any of the, the acts of Israel. That's why we think this is before that. He has so little, and yet he has so much that God had given him. It's absolutely amazing. Um, and yet the book poses a lot of difficulties and challenges, especially after the third chapter when we move into the speeches between Job and his three friends and then the young man Elihu, and, and, and it sounds so good, and when we read it, it sounds right, and everything they say sounds right. Nothing they say sounds wrong on the initial consideration, which is what makes it so difficult, and yet the Lord tells us they were wrong and sinful in what they spoke. And, and it's hard to parse through how much of what they're saying is true, but not in this context. And what do we do with this? And so if you're like me, you just like to read the first three chapters and the last four or five chapters and just move on. <laughs> because you know there's just a whole lot in there that's hard. Um, there are other questions. Um, 
There are questions when it says at the outset of the book that Job was blameless and upright. What does that mean? Is, is practical righteousness measurable? It seems like it is. He was the godliest man in the East. He was, he was the wealthiest man in the East. He was an incredibly upright and godly man. But what, what, what does it mean that he was blameless and upright? Um, what does it mean when the Lord says to Job at the end of the book, who is this that uh, darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And then turns around and says, Job has spoken rightly. That's hard. And then what we want to look at tonight in a focused way is, um, what, if anything, does this book teach us about Christ? Is Job a type of Christ? Where does this book fit in the canon? How, how are we supposed to read passages that are d- debated in church history about uh, the presence and the, the prefiguration of the Lord Jesus? So what I want us to do is we look at this just briefly sort of by way of overview I want us to consider the conflict in which Job is thrown, conflict in which Job finds himself, and then the victory, the triumph that he ultimately arises out in. Well, one of the interesting things about this book is that Job is experiencing the suffering and the soul wrestling and the questioning that he's experiencing on the human plane while there is a cosmic battle going on in the divine law court in heaven. Everything that's happening in this book, and we know that because we're told that, everything that's happening is happening in the, the heavenly law court. This is, a, this is a cosmic battle that's playing out in the tribunal of Almighty God, and, and Job is unaware of that. Job doesn't know what we know from the outset of this book. The veil has been torn back for us so we can see in, but Job is wrestling with questions of suffering and affliction and and the, the problem of evil and how to respond and who to listen to and what to think and why would God do this uh, without knowing what's happening, that the Lord is on a mission with Job. The Lord is doing something. The Lord initiates the conflict. Um, this is where Calvinism is so strong and right. Um, Satan doesn't initiate anything. He's out walking to or fro, looking who he can devour. He's just scanning the face of the earth, seeing who he can try to destroy, and the Lord calls him before him. And, and the Lord initiates. Notice verse 8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and turns away from evil. And so the Lord essentially says to Satan, let me show you my choice trophy of grace, and I want you to consider this object of my redeeming mercy and grace. Again, it's astonishing that Job is a believer, and not just a believer, that when you read this book and you read the testimony of his conscience, we, we pale in comparison on a practical righteousness level. Some of the things he says makes any Christian think, am I even a Christian? 
And yet, what little revelation he had. We don't know how he came to be the recipient of God's grace. We don't know those things. We don't know, um, we don't know what happened in his life. We don't know anything about his parents. But, but the Lord knows what he's done in Job's life. And the Lord takes the godliest man on the planet and puts him in front of Satan and says, consider my servant, Job. Um, this is the beginning of the conflict. Satan slanders God. He's a slanderer. He slandered God to um, Adam and Eve in the garden. He name means accuser. The Satan, the accuser. He is now slandering Job to God. Um, Surely Job only worships you because you give him good things. He only fears you because you've protected him. You've made him wealthy. He's only, he's only with you for bounty and external blessings. But if you take that away, he won't fear you. Um, Job is going to have to contend with the evil one at the beginning of this book. Very interesting. His contention with the evil one is short-lived in the conflict. You actually get the sense that Job passes the test in the first couple chapters, and then he's contending with his wife, and then he's contending with his friends, and then he's contending with God. Job is contending with everyone. He's been placed in a trial ordeal in which he has to contend with everyone. And at the end of the book, he's going to realize that the Lord is the one with whom he has to deal, that it's not Satan, that it's not his wife, that it's not his friends, but it's God himself with whom he has to deal. Um. That's the flow of the conflict. Remember, Satan um, takes everything from him externally except his wife. Um, not to be too harsh to Job's wife, but Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said that, that um, she took the rib out of which she was made and, and made a, an, a bow and arrow to shoot fiery darts of temptation at her husband. Curse God and die. Bless God and die. He, he even handles that in a godly way. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women. Satan takes all of his external possessions except his wife. Um, you get something of the power of Satan, don't you? Yes, it's delegated. The Lord allows him to do this, but Satan can move armies. Don't ever believe someone that tells you Satan isn't that powerful. If God grants him permission, he can move armies. He can move the elements. He causes a wind to blow that causes the house to fall on Job's children and kill them. And he can afflict physically. He'll go on in chapter 2 and afflict Job with some severe disease, um, so much so that when Job's friends see him, they don't recognize him. It was so terrible in the physical affliction that he endured in this conflict with the evil one. Um, but you also get the sense from the fact that the better part of this book is Job contending with friends that he calls miserable comforters, that that, that weighs almost heavier on him, that he's being told, you must have done something horrible. Their lack of compassion, their lack of grace, their lack of empathy, their lack of sympathy adds to his affliction in such a way that he spends dozens of chapters 
wrestling with them. Um, it's interesting. Job's friends actually do what most of us don't know how to do at the first. They just sit and don't say anything. Um, but there is a point where Job recognizes their demeanor towards him, which is why he speaks to them. Um, there's an evident lack of grace and humility and compassion. Now, that is a central message of this book. Actually, it's, it's something we so desperately need to, to know. Nothing is more unfitting for professing believers than to be a lacking in compassion to those that are suffering, lacking in mercy to those that are suffering. Here, Job is not suffering for anything he's done wrong. All suffering, obviously, is the effect of the fall, and, and Job fails to see, in some sense, what he deserves. Um, Job does fail in the conflict to acknowledge what he ultimately deserves, that he is a sinner and he deserves wrath. Here's a man who had been acknowledging that. He sacrificed. He sacrificed for himself. He sacrificed as a priest on behalf of his children and his family. By the way, he cared deeply for the salvation of his children. What, a, what, a, what an example to us, constantly worrying whether in their hearts they had cursed the Lord. But, but he is looking for a sacrifice for sins. And then at the end of the book, he's sacrificing again. This is a man who has acknowledged that he's a sinner, but in the conflict, it's as if he's forgotten what he was because he hasn't done a specific thing to deserve what he's going through. And yet in the conflict, he has failed to see that he deserves so much worse than what he's experiencing. It's an important point. Though he does not sin in how he responds, he fails to recognize that his sin deserves so much more than what he is actually getting, which is what leads to the conflict between he and the Lord at the end of the book. And very interesting in all the questioning that Job does in the conflict, and he asks a lot of questions, he never gets a single answer to those questions. Um, Chuck and I were talking this week and just noting that that's such a prevalent theme in the book of Job. The Lord is essentially coming to him and saying, don't ask why, ask who. Who am I? You know who I am. Um, the Lord speaks about his incomprehensible power and majesty and glory and wisdom and otherness. Otherness. Until Job finally, in the conflict, says, I repent in dust and ashes, I put my hand over my mouth, confesses his sin, and the conflict is over. Isn't that interesting? Conflict ends. The second Job says, I repent in dust and ashes, I put my hand over my mouth. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And the conflict is over. Job then becomes an intercessor for his miserable friends, and the Lord restores and doubly blesses Job. Now, we, we could look at this book and we could talk about how righteous people are to conduct themselves when they are suffering, not for any personal sin that they've committed. And, and there are myriads of lessons 
in that. Um, You know, one of those lessons, by the way, is that Job doesn't fall on his face when God takes his children and say, naked I came into this world and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away because that's the first time he ever prayed that. So, um, Job could pray that when the Lord took his children. He could pray that because he had been in the practice of already having a heart posture of that toward the Lord. He, d- he didn't ever think, all oh, this is mine. I've worked so hard for this. Eighth commandment, capitalism. He didn't think that. He knew everything he had was a gift from God. Naked I came into this world. Naked I'm going out. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. His livestock, his servants, his children, his health. He knew and he lived accordingly so that when the affliction came, he could respond in that way. I heard a story many years ago Ligon Duncan told about a woman who had lost her children in a car wreck and She said something like, I resigned my soul to God in prayer, thanked him for my children, and praised him for the time he gave me with them. And Ligon said, the only way that woman could do that in that moment is she was in the habit of doing that. She was in the habit of doing that. When we're not in the habit of doing that, we're not going to magically learn how to do that in the moment of conflict and crisis. So there are lessons. There are many, many lessons to... Uh, how believers ought to conduct themselves under suffering. And yet, it doesn't fully answer the question of the conflict. You remember, the beginning of the conflict doesn't start with Satan identifying Job. The beginning of the conflict be- begins with the Lord summoning jo- Satan to consider his servant Job. The Lord was doing something in this. This, is, this was an intentional act. Um, It has not often been noted, though it has been noted, it has not often been noted that we have to read what what is happening here in this book in light of Genesis 3.15. It's fascinating. This will open a world of new ways of looking at this. What is the Lord doing? The Lord is essentially unfolding that promise of redemption that he was going to have the seed of the woman crush the serpent's head. And, and in Job, in, in this, in this uh, preparatory period of redemptive history, the Lord is essentially showing Satan what he is going to do, how he is going to conquer, how he is going to destroy him and his kingdom. He is essentially saying, let me show you what I am doing by my grace. Remember in Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity, I will give the seed of the woman. The Lord is showing Satan what his ultimate defeat is going to look like. And it's going to be in, in a conflict, in a trial. It's going to be in Satan doing his best to destroy and in God destroying him in that battle, in that conflict. And then the Lord being vindicated and justified because at the end of the book, Job is justified, he is vindicated, but more than that, the Lord is vindicated. That's the whole point of where this book is moving. God doesn't need to be vindicated. He doesn't need anything. 
but he chooses to vindicate his name and his power, his grace and his mercy, his majesty and his redemption in destroying the evil one and delivering his people in causing them to stand and in making them more than conquerors. Um, there has to be a conflict because there had to be enmity in, in God's victory over the evil one. This is so much pointing to that. Um, and so we look at the victory. Job succeeded in overcoming the temptations of the evil one. We're currently... Um, he, he overcame um, the temptations of his friends. Um, he was weak. He stumbled. He cursed the day of his birth. That's not good to do. He failed to see the goodness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. That is ultimately what he sees at the end in the triumph. He sees that God, and this is what James tells us, that the Lord is gracious and merciful. Isn't that beautiful? This book doesn't feel like grace and mercy through it. That's the point. The Lord is teaching Job how gracious and merciful he is. Job, Job conquers when he offers up prayers and tears with supplication. That's when he conquers. He conquers when he comes to the place of brokenness. Um, and he resigns himself fully to the Lord, who he is, um, what he says about himself. He, he resigns himself to the wisdom of God. That's why this book is part of the wisdom literature. He learns cosmic wisdom. He didn't know that before the conflict. That's part of the triumph. The Lord was causing him to triumph even in learning these things about him by experience. There's, there's an experiential victory that Job is experiencing in his own life. He becomes a gracious man. He sacrifices for his friends who just spent, who knows how long of those nine months, heaping scorn and condemnation on him. And the Lord says to them, take these sacrifices, go to Job, have him sacrifice and intercede, and you don't get the sense that Job was ever bitter. Why? Because He's learned more of God's grace and mercy toward him. So now he can intercede for miserable counselors who were a weight around his neck. Um, he triumphs throughout. He gets a greater view of God's glory and his goodness uh, both who God is and how he loves to give to his people, that he wants to bless his people. James says that. You see the patience of Job, that in the end, God is still a God that loves to bless. And he blesses greater than he did in the beginning. Um, that's all part of the, the triumph of this story. Now, there are clues throughout about how Job um, perseveres in the conflict unto the triumph. He doesn't buckle. He doesn't fail. And I think this is where we see Christ. Job was a man, as I said, who sacrificed. 
That's throughout the book. He was a man who was acquainted with the need for a substitution. He, he recognized his need for substitutionary sacrifice. He recognized his need for propitiation, for sin and atonement. Um, that, that carried him on to the triumph. He also recognized his need for a mediator. And while some debate this, I, I think this is altogether clear in Job 9, 32 and 33. Um, he, he says, speaking about the Lord, for he is not a man as I am that I should answer him and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there a, and, and the Hebrew word is umpire between us that might lay his hand on us both. A mediator. He was longing for a mediator who would come between God and man. He's longing for the mediator, ultimately. He doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know his name was Jesus. He doesn't know he would be God and man in one person forever. But the Holy Spirit, remember, is writing this through Job. And Job's longing for mediation between himself and God is a right desire. It is carrying him through in the triumph. And and then, even stronger than that, and this is one of the most famous verses and also debated, uh, Job 19.25, Job says, and you know this verse, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he shall stand upon the earth, and then without my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see uh, on my side, how my heart um, burns within me, essentially. Um, the word there in the Hebrew Goel is the same word used throughout Scripture of the kinsman redeemer. So you'll find this later in the Law of Moses. You'll then find it in the book of Ruth, Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. And the kinsman redeemer, remember, had those tasks of marrying a wife if she had lost her husband and raising up offspring, seed, and, and that caring for the property and any debt and, and, and avenging the blood if, if there was someone who caused any harm, that the kinsman redeemer had all these roles. And that's in redemptive history because Jesus is the kinsman redeemer. Jesus marries a, a widowed bride, as it were. Jesus pays the debt to redeem the inheritance for his people. Jesus avenges. Um, Jesus avenges his people by destroying the evil one, by washing away their sins. Um, Job, again, doesn't know all that we know, but he is acknowledging that he needs a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer. And then there is an intimation that he recognizes that he needs a ransom. Uh, Elihu says this in Job thirty-three twenty-four. the young man who speaks wisdom. He says, then he is gracious unto him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for him. So there is even intimation that they understood the need for redemptive ransom, a buying back. Now, Job, um, Job is a sinner. Um, Job is not sinless. There have been commentators that have made the mistake of reading blameless and upright as sinless. In fact, one commentator goes so far as to say that Job could not have been looking for a mediator because that would mean that he was acknowledging sinfulness, but he wasn't sinful. And why was he sacrificing all the time? <laughs> and why does he repent 
at the end of the book when God gives him the victory. Um, Job is a sinner just like us. Um, Job has a nature just like us. And yet, Job does serve in a special way in the Bible and redemptive history to prefigure Jesus Christ as a type. Um, and, And this is so clear. Almost no one in Scripture is a clearer type of the man of sorrows than Job is. Um, Job, the upright sufferer, is a type of Jesus, the sinless sufferer. Um, The questions that Job is wrestling with are answered at the cross. Um, You know, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he is tempted and tried, and he overcomes the evil one, the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, faced off, in battle, in the wilderness. And he, and he doesn't succumb. He begins to overthrow Satan and his kingdom there. He enters into that trial conflict, the ordeal there in the wilderness. And, and he's tested just like Job is tested. Satan comes and he slanders God to Jesus, that tempting him to do it on his own, to, to do things his own way. And, and Jesus resists the temptations of the evil one. And then he is hated and despised throughout his entire ministry. No one has ever been so hated unjustly as Jesus. And right now our world is enamored with talking about justice. The greatest injustice that ever happened in this world was the way that God the Son was treated in the flesh. That is the greatest injustice. That is greater than abortion. It's greater than all racial injustice. It is the greatest injustice. This is God in the flesh. And his own people, the religious leaders in Israel, hated him, sought to uh, destroy him, heap condemnation on him, maligned him, blasphemed him, drove him, they hoped, to a point of of, uh, suicide, as it were. What, is he going to go kill himself? Um, he, was, he was rejected by his own disciples. He was betrayed by Judas. Um, his whole life was the conflict. Job's was nine months. Jesus' whole life was conflict. Think about that. His entire public ministry is conflict till he unjustly suffers the wrath of God and the scorn of men on the cross. And yet, we know that that is ultimately what Job needed. Um, There is no salvation outside of Christ. Job is not justified by his obedience or his practical righteousness, as good and right and important as they are. He is justified by the coming Redeemer. And as he typifies him in this moment, we, we see when we come to the climax of redemptive history that Jesus is taking Job's sins and our sins and, and the wrath of God for our sins, and he is becoming the sacrifice, and he is becoming the, the mediator, and he is the redeemer, and he is the ransom. He is everything in himself, and he is disarming principalities and powers. The victory that God gives Job over the evil one, and the victory that God gains over the evil one in the book of Job is, is 
just a tiny foretaste of the ultimate victory that Christ has accomplished fully for us. Um, That's why the book of Job is in the Bible. Not just to help you get through suffering when you're being afflicted unjustly. It's not just to teach you about the grandeur of God, as important as that is. Um, it is. It is to teach us about how God deals with sin and evil, Satan, suffering, in his own body on the tree. I've always loved that quote by Dorothy Sayer uh, when she's reflecting on evil in the world. She says, whatever else we may say, of this much we can be sure God took his own medicine on the cross. There's nothing you'll ever go through that you'll ever be able to say, no one understands what I'm going through. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that as a pastor. Nobody understands what I'm going through. No, someone understands far more than you realize because he went through far more than you'll ever go through. He went through hell on the cross, literally. He literally suffered the full wrath of God on the cross. He cried out in dereliction. Job cried out in dereliction, but Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God never forsook Job. He forsook Christ in that moment of agony. According to his human nature, under his own wrath on the cross, God forsaken by God, Luther said, who can understand it? And then he rose from the dead, and he rose victorious, and he conquered death, and he conquered Satan, and he abolished our sins, and he receives so many more offspring by his victory. Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah 53, says his soul would be satisfied. He would see his offspring. Isn't that awesome? Seed. Every tongue, tribe, nation, and language. He would get so much more than he had before he suffered. He would get the nations for his inheritance. By the way, just as an aside, I forgot about this, but it says that the Lord gave Job back twice of all that he had, but he only gave him ten children back. And as someone told me many, many years ago, uh, he believed that Job really got all his children back because God had redeemed the ten that he had taken and that Job would one day be reconciled with them in glory. Um, The Lord restores his blessing on his people because he is gracious and merciful and because of Christ. Now, let me just close with this. Um, Of all the lessons that we can take away, I want to encourage you to draw deeply from this book those lessons about being prepared to suffer, being ready for suffering, whether that be physical, whether that be the loss of family members, whether that be persecution. As Christians, we are called to be ready for suffering. But as we are, we, we, we have the full revelation of God to carry us through. We have, we have an anchor for our souls. We know that the conflict is already won. This is why Paul could say in Romans 8, and I want you to think about this, we are more than conquerors. How can you be more than a conqueror? You're either a conqueror or a loser. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And that's in the context of suffering, Romans 8. 
that the victory has been won. Satan has been defeated. When we're tempted and tried, we, we are ready have been given the victory in Jesus Christ and we are then to live out in light of what Christ has done for us, in light of what we have with him. And, and then to know that if he calls us, if he puts us in a place of suffering, that he'll be there with us, just like he was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he'll be there with his people in the midst of the suffering and the affliction because he is the great high priest who, who is been tempted in every point as we are, who has suffered far more than we ever will, whoever lives to make intercession for us, like Job interceded for his friends, Jesus ever lives to intercede so that our faith will not fail. That's, that's our great hope. That's, that's what this book is giving us. And then secondly, I want to encourage us to pursue practical godliness in our lives. I need a lot more of this in my own life. We heard recently from Pastor Cosby about daily praying in secret, how important that is. Praying for our children, pleading for God to cover them in the blood of Jesus, wherever they are, whatever stage of life, that we would be parents that, that care about their souls deeply, that we'd be leading them, um, as I know you are, that we would continue leading them in the truth so that they could grow up and be godly men and women in this world. I hope that these things will encourage you to look at this book again and to embrace the teaching of this book and not to shy away from it, but to go deep into it. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this difficult book, this weighty book, a book that we often don't understand and yet a book that you have breathed out by your spirit and that we need for our Christian lives. We pray that you would teach us and instruct us in it as you have tonight. We pray that you would draw to our minds the many precious lessons that you have put in this book. But we pray that you would fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Job, the one who suffered and who conquered so that we, when we suffer, might know that we already have the victory in him. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you stir us up to see more of your greatness and your glory in this part of your revelation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.